Father, we've read these verses and we know that this is a very difficult, uh, tricky issue. There's much confusion over this. this. There's much heartache over this issue. And yet, as we have just sung, you overrule with your grace. And so we ask that there would be an abundance of grace today. Father, would you be gracious in giving us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Father, that there may be transformation, that there may be conviction, that there may be confession, but that we may rejoice in the God who has called us his own. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I really wanted to get out of this section of verses. I really wanted someone else to do this. But I didn't, I didn't get that. Um, this is not an issue, uh, easy issue to discuss. And yet, it is what we need to hear because it is the Word of God. And it speaks to us unlike anyone or anything else. The church has not handled this a topic of sex very well, has it, uh, through the years. Through the years, there have been churches that have made sex such a strange issue that it is rarely discussed or helpfully discussed. One of the issues is that our culture speaks so much into this topic of sex, even to Christians, And so how do we balance a biblical worldview in a hyper-sexualized culture? Well, that was the same case in Corinth. So what better place to gain wisdom and insight and direction than from God himself, by his spirit, through his word? In this passage, Paul's main overarching point, I think, challenges us, but it also reminds us of the reality of our position in Christ. He says that sex isn't as casual as people have made it out to be, that everyone must take their bodies and what they do with them seriously because we are not our own. We belong to Christ, body and soul. And so the first thing I want us to look at, the first thing I want us to do is to be honest in understanding the reality of our sexuality. And just how vulnerable we are to its distortion. A lot of trouble comes when there are these uh, repressed sexual feelings. They are there. Uh, All of us have them. Some of us let them run free, and that gets us into trouble. Uh, Some of us uh, deny those feelings, and we push them down underneath the surface, and then they surface at strange times and moments when we least expect them. Paul, thankfully, does not beat around the bush. He keeps bringing up this topic over and over again because he knows both the positive and the negative realities of human sexuality. We are all vulnerable. How many stories do we need to read of moral failings in and out of the church? Even recently, the owner of the Patriots, a $6 billion man at a strip mall, 
uh, at a massage parlor. It's, it's, it's crazy. And it's almost every day we read about this. How many of us know people personally who have been caught up or affected by this? It affects so many lives. Fortunately, the gospel is a message of healing and restoration. And in some of these situations, marriages, relationships have survived and even been strengthened. But the pain and the ongoing side effects continue to be felt, both in that immediate nuclear family and in the church family as well. You and I must be aware We must be aware of our own vulnerability. The posture of self-righteousness that looks down at others who have stumbled into sexual sin is the epitome of spiritual arrogance and frankly, it sets us up for a fall. And so I urge you to face the reality of your own sexuality and your own vulnerability to its distortion. It is important that we look ourselves in the mirror and see ourselves as we are, created by God as sexual persons, but also engaged in spiritual warfare in which that sexuality can be distorted. Second, we need to deal honestly with the biblical theology of sexuality. What a fun concept. Paul wrestles with this as he writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. This is saying that you and I are more than animals. Uh, we're, not, we're, we're, we're not just made up of body parts and, and, and nerve endings. You and I have freedom to do things, and not just the way that they come naturally, but the way you and I were created by God to do things. It's this, uh, the Christian liberty, you know, think of the illustration of a fish on a park bench. It's not free. Or a train in, uh, in an open field. It's not free. No, a fish can only be free when it's free in its environment that it was created for in the waters. And a train is only free when it's on tracks. The same for us when we are in the will of God. And far from being negative, the Apostle Paul was a defender of freedom in Christ. In fact, the quote, all things are lawful for me, uh, is likely a quote from Paul that the Corinthians were actually abusing. Throughout his missionary journeys, as he established churches, he had to struggle with these legalistic Judaizers who wanted to tie up new believers in Christ into knots of Levitical laws. Paul was a defender of freedom in Christ. He continually articulated what was the essence of Old Testament teaching, his theme that, uh, that God had designed us to be fully human, 
that we're more than just animals and we have the privilege of living at a much higher level of existence at the same time. Paul was very aware that this teaching of Christian freedom could and would likely be distorted. So he quotes saying this popular this saying that was popular in Corinth, whether it's his or not, all things are lawful for me. But then he adds a new dimension. He says, but not all things are helpful. Again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Do you catch the balance of this that he's playing? Freedom can be distorted into a license. And license can be distorted into the destruction of others and self-destruction. One of the greatest New Testament teachings on Christian freedom is Paul's letter to Galatia. And in it, Paul urges the believers to not again submit themselves to the yoke of slavery. He begs them not to step back into a, a religion defined by do's and don'ts, void of a personal relationship with the Lord. He exhorts them to freedom, but not a freedom to license. And so he writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul was doing business in this first century world in which the Greeks looked down on the body. There was a proverbial saying, the body is a tomb. Epictetus says, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. The important thing was the soul to the Greeks, the the spirit of a person. The body didn't really matter to them. And one expression of this in Greek philosophy is this idea of Gnosticism. It taught the idea of dualism between body and soul. The soul is recognized as good and of God, and the body was bad and not of God. And this produced two extremes. The first is asceticism. Say that five times fast. In which everything... Uh, possible was done to subject or humiliate the desires and the instincts of the body. If the body was bad, we should deny its appetites, bringing it under severe discipline. Anything that feels good must be bad. This was the attitude behind many of the monastic movements. It is a distortion of biblical teaching. On the other extreme, there was the more popular reaction, which chose not to neglect the body, but rather to indulge it. We could call this extreme sensuality. This was the prevailing attitude in the city of Corinth. Since the body was of no importance, you could do with it what you liked. Satisfy and gorge its appetites. If the soul is all that matters, then what a person does with the body is of no significance. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
And I think we live in a similar society. Most of those of us around us have never heard of the Gnostics, but they treat sex as an appetite to be satisfied as casually as the need for food. Just watch practically any television show or movie that comes out these days. And the argument goes, if it feels good and no one gets hurt, then what's the problem? And this argument is nothing new. Paul heard it addressed the same way. That's why he talks about food being meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Both food and stomach will one day be destroyed. Both, But the body is not intended. It is not meant for sexual immorality. It is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Even as Jesus was raised from the dead, so you and I will be raised from the dead. Ours is an eternal existence. We will have bodies in the life to come even as we have bodies in this life. And Paul emphasizes that our bodies in this life are members of Jesus Christ. You and I are part of the body of Christ. We are the extensions of Christ in this world. And Jesus is to be seen in us. God has created us as sexual beings, male and female. And in marriage, we have the privilege to find oneness in in assuming responsibility for one another beyond just using each other sexually. What is the world going to see in the life of the believer if we practice sexual immorality? Defacing the oneness that we are privileged to have in marriage. Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, how male and female are to commit themselves together holistically in a way in which the two shall become one. Enjoying each other to the fullest while not ripping each other off. When he refers to taking a prostitute, he's referring to any kind of sex outside of marriage. But in Corinth, religious prostitution was sort of the order of the day. There are many of these religious prostitutes that worked up in the temple of Aphrodite and uh, uh, looking out over the city. And in the evenings, they would come down and they would ply their sexual trade in the name of the goddess. God is making a once and for all indictment against either of the two extremes. You and I are not called to asceticism, which denies the doctrine of creation and what God created it for. God has given you and I appetites to be healthfully expressed. But you see, in some of the first century Christians, they were so aesthetic that they would deny the ability for a husband and a wife to even have sex. They didn't want the relationship to be dirtied by sex. That's how far off base they were on their understanding of this. (laughs) Could you imagine the the pent-up frustrations that came in that kind of relationship and how one or the other might even rationalize uh, their way into sex outside of their marriage? Paul fights against asceticism, but he also fights against the libertarian approach that says anything goes because the body is bad. He says it in verse 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then he adds the final dimension as he declares, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whereas in the Old Testament, God's presence was in the tabernacle and then in the temple in Jerusalem. And we've been looking at this with my group on Thursday nights. We're looking at John chapter 2 and Jesus clears the temple and he says, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he is talking about his body. And then after the ascension and Pentecost comes and the Spirit descends on the believer's Now God dwells inside each and every one of us who have his spirit. You are his temple. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Understanding the biblical theology of sexuality. Third, sexual sin destroys. Flee from it. Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin, by its very definition and reality, is dehumanizing. You essentially become an animal. You you declare yourself to be nothing but a body and, and, and parts and nerve endings. It destroys you and it destroys others. Well, why? Why would God be so strict? Is he like the angry grandfather uh, somewhere up in the sky who just wants to destroy all the fun in life? Not for a moment. We have to understand that this is something that God created. He gave it to us to be positive and fulfilling. He wants it to be channeled for your very best. Far from his command being negative and inhibiting, they are guides for healthy sexual living. In fact, even if one is not a Christian and does not listen to biblical teaching, there are plenty of good common sense reasons for avoiding premarital and extramarital affairs, extramarital sex. The possibility of pregnancy, just look at the life of King David and how many abortions are committed out of premarital and extramarital affairs. It's devastating numbers. The danger of disease, the broken view of masculinity that drives this sexual conquest uh, to prove that masculinity, false. Modern-day slavery, which is solely based on the sex trade and the demand, and it is personally destructive, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. How many times do we have to see broken homes and broken families and broken lives? I think sex is much more serious matter than some of us are willing to admit. It is symbolic of commitment. Even recently, a a friend of mine that's dealing with this, and its consequences can be so devastating. 
simply stated, it is impossible to achieve in a premarital or extramarital relationship a spiritual, emotional, psychological, and mental bonding, a oneness of ultimate commitment which is possible in a Christian marriage. That potential for heartbreak and and shattered dreams and and broken lives, broken families, uh, children caught up in this, it's enormous. So not only is it right, but it's wise, it's smart, it's the intellectual thing, it's the smart thing to do, to wait until marriage. It's the right thing to do to be faithful inside of marriage. God's ways are not designed to spoil fun. God, His ways are right and intelligent and smart and helpful. Yes, sexual sin destroys And so claim the help of the Holy Spirit to flee from it, to shun it. You cannot play with fire without being burned. It is difficult to go right up to the line and not cross over it. Finally, and I think most helpfully, we need to remember that we were bought by someone who gave all to have us. In the book of Hosea, God tells his prophet to marry a girl who he knows will shatter his heart. She was a girl with a spotty past and a fickle heart who would time and time again spurn his love and find solace in the arms of another person. The story comes to a head when the woman finds herself on the bidding block Destitute, dejected, with no other options to dig herself out of this debt that she's incurred. And Hosea buys her back. Not to shame her. Not to humiliate her. Not to abuse her. But to love her. But even this account is just a faint image compared to the one we see in the gospel. One in which... The great lover who, despite our more than spotty past and fickle hearts, whose love we spurned and whose heart we have broken, didn't just bid to get the love of his life back, but gave it all, body and soul, to have us as his own once more. And when we lift our heads and look at the cross, we know for sure that it is not out of revenge. His desire is for us. You were bought with a price. You are not your own, but why would you want to be when the one who has bought you loves you like that? I hope this message comes through clearly. I hope it has faithfully portrayed God's view of what he created you to be. As a sexual human being. In a way that does not push you toward asceticism on the one extreme or towards uh, anarchy, sexual anarchy on the other. It is to challenge you to claim the help of the Holy Spirit to keep yourself faithful to Jesus Christ and in the process be faithful to yourself and others urging you to flee sexual immorality, remembering that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And I hope it has ministered a word of God's grace if you have cut corners. God is in the business of welcoming you home if you are willing to repent. To you, God offers his good news of forgiveness. He accepts you as you are. He gives you a clean slate. You may bear the scars of your memory of actions or thoughts that countered his will in your life. And yet he is willing and he longs to transform you into a right relationship with him. He promises to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west and to give you a brand new beginning. He wants to lift you out of that grocery list of brokenness that Paul gives us in verses 9 to 11 where he writes, Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Oh, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What good news. What good news. Let's pray. Father, it could be easy to just uh, hit the mute button on this and wait until everything's over. How much harder it is to hear these words, to understand them rightly, to be convicted, to be challenged. And then in that, to confess, to repent, and to seek wholeness and restoration. Because your gospel is not a law that comes down on our shoulders that is impossible to bear. But it comes as a a gift of grace. And all we have to do is accept it. Putting that past behind us laying those sins and those burdens at the foot of the cross and claiming victory in Jesus. Oh, what our world would look like if these things were to happen, especially in this area of sexuality. Oh, what our church would look like if people put these things behind them and pressed on to the goal ahead finding that forgiveness and freedom at the cross, not freedom to license, but freedom to humbly repent, confess, receive the grace, and move forward in that newness of life. Oh, how different our relationships would look like. Oh, how different our families would be. Father, impress upon us this reality. Remind us of the goodness of the gospel. 
Remind us of how good Christ is and how much we need him on a daily basis. Oh, that we would have victory in Jesus. Oh, that we would have victory in Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen.